Software Engineering Radio Episode 45, Roundtable on Ultra-Large-Scale Systems. So, welcome listeners to another episode of Software Engineering Radio. In this episode, we are going to talk about ultra-large-scale systems. Um, in order to do that, we have a number of guests. Um, some of them will join later, and I'll introduce them later. Now we have Linda Northrop and Doug Schmidt. He's actually on the podcast for the second time already, <laughs> so that's great. So, um, why don't we start by... Linda and Doug, just briefly introducing yourselves, and then we'll go into the ULS discussion. Uh, so I'm Linda Northrup, and I'm director of the Product Line Systems Program at the Software Engineering Institute. Uh, the Product Line Systems Program does the work at the SEI in software architecture, software product lines, and component technology. And recently, I was asked to lead a research study on ultra-large-scale systems. I'm Doug Schmidt from Vanderbilt University, where I've worked on middleware and modeling tools, as, as you may have heard from previous podcast interviews. And I worked with Linda uh, and a number of other people from both external and internal to the SEI on the ULS Systems Project. So Linda, why don't you give us a short overview what ULS stands for? What, what are ultra-large-scale systems? So ultra-large-scale systems are systems that um, have... Uh, large scale among one of multiple dimensions. And in fact, uh, one or more multiple dimensions, I should say. So originally the problem posed to us was posed to us by an assistant secretary of the army. And he said, we are not doing so terribly well with the systems that we're building right now, the software systems we're building right now. In the future, I anticipate we will have billion lines of code systems. How will we reliably build those? And so he asked us to take a look at this issue, and we began to think about systems that would be billion lines of code. And we decided that lines of code was only the tip of the iceberg in terms of right. them being great big. Mm -hmm. And there would be uh, also they would be ultra-large in the sense of the amount of data, data that's transmitted, data that's stored. They would be ultra-large scale in terms of the number of elements that would be involved, whether those are hardware elements or software elements or people and other systems. They would be ultra-large scale in the number of connections, connections between clients and servers and networks, ultra-large scale in terms of the number of people that would be involved, people as producers, consumers, acquirers. Mm -hmm. And so when we look at systems, um, systems have been increasing in scale, starting with the Internet and spawning things like Google and Yahoo and now the, the wireless communication world. But then think about, for example, something like Google and attach, instead of using Google as, as sort of a passive information exchange, think about um, sensors, Mm -hmm. And think about sensors in a global wireless internet-based way and imagine then the issues that you have and what scale actually brings you. And so what we're thinking about in terms of ultra-large scale systems, and, and I've been cagey not to define them precisely because mm -hmm. I don't think we have a precise <laughs> definition, yeah. Yeah. but there are systems that are ultra-large scale in many dimensions and they're... they're if you will, systems of systems at internet scale. Mm -hmm. and, and some of these systems probably have a military background. Others, I could imagine, are, for example, in some environmental monitoring area where you have a lot of sensors and many different agencies involved. Well, so military background, yes, that was what motivated right. it. But think about healthcare infrastructure. Mm -hmm. Think about mm -hmm. hospitals, insurance companies, pharmacies, yeah. patients, doctors, and then not only the information systems that would be connected, but then think about patients wearing monitoring devices. Mm -hmm. Think about right. the new capability for all the sentient devices that, that are now popping up where we have chips that could store your medical records. And, and imagine that if you are wearing a wristwatch that has your medical 
medical record, um, how that could be read and how that could be updated and how that could be communicated. And as we begin to think about how all of this gets connected, Mm -hmm. it gets connected in an ultra-large scale way that we don't really know how to deal with. Just to amplify a few things Linda was saying, the power grid is another uh, mm-hmm. example of a system that's very large scale now and becoming even larger as we try to network together the grid and various producers and consumers of power. Yep. Uh, automotive systems trying to put sensors into automobiles and making them part of some large network of cars that mm-hmm. can report accidents and find ways for people to route around traffic mm-hmm. congestion. Uh, the air traffic control system, uh, systems for utilities, the water systems, and so on. These There are many examples that go above and beyond what's in the DOD systems. Uh, just another thing to go along with what Linda was saying before. Today, when we do manage to build these these large-scale systems or these systems of systems, they tend to be extremely expensive, and they tend to take a very long time to build. Uh, even if they, they do work, they, they're very time-consuming and, and consume a lot of resources. Yeah. So part of the objective here also is to be able to build large-scale systems and systems of systems and ultra-large-scale systems in, in an affordable way that doesn't mm-hmm. bankrupt the whole uh, civilization <laughs> trying to get them to yeah. market and yeah. make them be stable and reliable. Yeah. Yeah, when we begin to think about internet scale and attaching sensors and attaching attaching hardware and begin to think about the ramifications, uh, you see the internet when it was developed um, has done wonderful things mm-hmm. and used a, a very smart approach in that there were very simple protocols with the ability to have the innovation at the edges and, and that's, that's grow, certainly, kind of. yeah, absolutely the growth yep. pattern. But it didn't do security very well. Mm-hmm. And we know that it's vulnerable because mm-hmm. we know in the things that we're using it for that security wasn't really a thought at the time. Mm-hmm. Well, the kinds of systems we're talking about will have that Internet-like capability, but they're also going to necessarily have security and reliability and real-time performance. And, yep. and we're not even sure what some of those things mean for systems of this large scale, mm-hmm. but we know there will be issues. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Another interesting point along those lines, people will often say things like, isn't today's global telecommunication systems an ultra-large-scale system? Yeah. And we know how to do that, so why is there anything new, or what are the challenges that go yeah. beyond that? And one of the things that's certainly different, especially in the in the military environment, but increasingly in, in the civilian environment from our everyday lives, is being able to build systems at the level of global telecom systems that have to be have the property of being able to survive and continue to operate effectively through attacks or accidents or mistakes or breakdowns. And today's systems, when things go wrong, when someone cuts a, a major switching center with a backhoe, the cable, and you <laughs> lose phone service for, for several hours or days, th- those are considered to be catastrophic anomalies. Mm-hmm. And these are in peaceful environments where people aren't trying to attack you yep. uh, continuously. So one of the things that's also very important in this world that Linda was talking about with respect to security is building systems that continue to do sensible things even when they're under attack. And we really don't have technologies at this point today, despite a lot of effort by smart people on security and information mm-hmm. assurance, that can give us the kind of 24-7 dependability and, and other properties that we'd come to expect if we use them for life-critical and mission-critical things. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that we discovered in looking at ultra-large scale is what characteristics the ultra-large scale give us. And things, Doug just mentioned one of them, the fact that these systems will have normal failures. Mm -hmm. Um, In the systems today, we try to prevent failures. Mm -hmm. We do defect prevention. And what we're going to understand is that when you have something of that large scale, there will be failures, and we need to learn how not just to cope with them, we need to learn how to contain them, we Mm -hmm. need to learn how to warn about them, Um, other things that are going to happen necessarily uh, that that quite different. People will be inside the boundary of the system. So So today we talk about, yeah, Yeah. part of the system. Today we talk about people as users. People will necessarily be a part of the system. They'll Mm -hmm. be an element. They'll be a factor in the behavior of the system Mm -hmm. itself. Mm -hmm. And that brings a whole new dynamic that we as software technologists have never really considered. Mm -hmm. You know, thinking about um, the behavior of people and how that's going to control the system. And then thinking about group behavior Mm -hmm. and theories of collaboration and theories of coordination and what would incentivize people. Um, So... So among some of those characteristics, um, decentralization, uh, I mentioned it in the Internet, and that's a good example of where we really don't have a central authority that owns the Internet, Mm -hmm. and that was exactly the right thing. But it's not going to be possible in these kinds of systems to have a central authority either in sort of a hierarchical software point of view or in an authoritative ownership 
point of view because the scale will just defy that kind of centralization. It will have to be polycentric or decentralized. Or maybe, with other words, self-managing, self-repairing, self-organizing? So, so that's really interesting because a lot of the work, for example, the IBM work in autonomic computing and some of the work in self-healing, um, you wonder why we're doing that. This mm -hmm. whole ultra-large-scale system study gives that a reason to be. Right. <laughs> yeah. So, and also, um, of course, being a software technology person, I'd probably like to talk about the technologies that are involved sure. in these things. But, sure. but probably, maybe even more importantly, there is also like a social dimension. How, how, we can, how can we make people play well? with respect to the system. So does the report also address these issues? Yes. In fact, one of, the, one of the big findings of the report is that a whole new perspective is required for us to deal with mm -hmm. these systems. And the perspective is going to go beyond what we thought about in normal software technology and software engineering or agile development or any of the things that we've approached to date. It's an interdisciplinary perspective that yep. is necessarily have to include anthropologists and sociologists and psychologists mm -hmm. as well as economists and biologists and yeah. we're going to have to reach out what's interesting is a lot of the research that's been done that could be brought to bear in ultra large scale systems has to date been sort of fringe research so some yep. of the work that people are doing on swarm intelligence and, I, I was and, about to mention that yeah, yeah and <laughs> colonization and genetic programming and mechanism design and and simulated annealing and yep. and a lot of that work has been thought by some to be quite eccentric and really way right. out there and i think that we're going to have to bring that research under the tent and make it first class because we're not going to be able to deal with ultra large scale systems in the traditional engineering mm -hmm. top down mm -hmm. um, approaches we've been using mm -hmm. it's, it's going to require a new perspective just to follow along with that point a little bit so People, of course, historically, when they think about building systems, they think about developing architectures and coming up with designs and writing programs to control computing devices and communication devices. And one of the things we realized early on in this particular study was that we're going to also have to come up with ways to essentially program, I use that word in quotes here, organizations and people in order to get them to work in ways that will be leading to the successful creation of the ultra-large-scale systems in their mm -hmm. operation but may not necessarily follow traditional ways of organization. For example, uh, and you're, you're seeing this today in some of the larger systems of systems efforts, we have many companies that historically compete with each other quite ferociously for winning large government contracts yep. being brought together as part of uh, overall integrated national teams. And this creates a whole new set of challenges because the different groups are not necessarily always working for the same objectives. And we have to come up with new techniques, some of the stuff that Linda was talking about, uh, mechanism design and other game-theoretic approaches to yeah. try to give people incentives to, to do the right thing when we can't necessarily dictate and control every aspect of the way in which they behave. And this is something that is going to require a lot of innovation and insight from organizational studies and anthropology uh, and then apply it in a way that will be meaningful in the context of producing technologies that somehow are going to work together and not simply reflect the dysfunctionality of the organizations in which they're sometimes created. So you're not talking about brainwashing and high hypnosis and things? <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully not. Hopefully we won't have to go to those extents. One of the most powerful metaphors that emerged from this study is this whole idea that to date we've been building analogously buildings mm -hmm. and much more complex buildings and even small neighborhoods of buildings mm -hmm. but ultra large scale systems will not be about buildings it will be more like cities mm -hmm. and when you think about cities building great buildings does not make you a city planner mm -hmm. because there's so much more involved in a city and we think about cities having an absolute dynamism attached to them, mm -hmm. having infrastructure, having infrastructure for transportation yes. and energy and, yeah. and communication. And this gets into what Doug was saying, that we don't actually dictate where you live in a city or how you conduct yourself, but we have building codes and we have laws and rules yep. that are sort of parameters that guide behavior. And when they don't work, we change those parameters. But but it is much more dynamic and much more organic yeah. than 
it is in a building situation. So and in staying with this metaphor, it also tells us that there are some things that have to be standardized, for example, the diameters of water lines or something sure. and the voltage sure. in, in the in the electrical sure. grid, but there are other freedoms then where people can innovate and, and uh, yeah. And and the key is being able to design which one of those things right. should be standardized. Mm -hmm. You know, as I mentioned in the internet, it was it was just genius mm -hmm. that the protocol was so simple so that innovation could occur. Well, we, if if in designing these systems we get those rules wrong, we get those mm -hmm. parameters mm -hmm. wrong, then it's not going to be able to allow innovation. It's not going to be able to allow the growth and the incentives that we really want. Mm -hmm. One thing I think we'll discuss later when we get the other members of our group to talk about is this concept yeah. of design at all levels, which is really at what Linda right. was talking about. Yeah. So we're, we're not just designing the computer systems and the software and the networks, but we're actually designing the, the organizations. And we're really also trying to work on designing the higher level acquisition policies and regulatory uh, policies that are going to be guiding the way in which the organizations work. Mm -hmm. And a lot of these things require consensus and organizational involvement that, that get way beyond what traditional computer scientists and engineers think right. about. But if we if we can't make headway on that, then all the technology in the world will only have limited impact because we'll get uh, wrapped around the wrong axles in other parts of the system. So ultimately, this is not a software problem. Or, or is, is are we starting from the state of the software and, and extrapolating what else we need to do to get the software right? Well, it all depends on what you consider to be programming. So <laughs> if you're programming organizations and, and societies, then it, it is a software problem. Except okay. the, the computational <laughs> engine that we're running on is not uh, an x86 chip. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's not just a classic software problem. Mm -hmm. But I think at the same time, we don't want to lose sight of the fact that once you strip away all the layers of, of bureaucracy and administration and organizational oversight and so on, there's a lot of very hard technical challenges right. at the core of here, some of which are software problems, some of which are other types of technology challenges yep. as well. And I think we have one of the things that makes the study so interesting is it tries to take a balanced view from mm -hmm. many perspectives without trying to go overboard on either a, a human-centric approach or, a, or an organizational-centric approach or a software approach or a network or systems approach. Yeah. And the study is is a report that, that outlines the challenges or solutions? So, so what the study actually generated, the, the group of people, mm -hmm. as Doug mentioned, some from the SEI and, and many from outside, mm -hmm. um, was what we would call an ultra-large-scale system research agenda. We described the characteristics of ultra-large-scale systems, the inherent challenges that those characteristics drive, and then we outlined what we believe to be seven really promising research areas and topics underneath those. Mm -hmm. Now, the whole idea is not to presume that this is the sum and substance of all the research that would ever right. need to be done. Yeah. But it's a good place to put the stake in the ground. Mm -hmm. It's it's a set of research areas that would allow us to make progress, to think about what areas we really need some breakthrough discoveries yeah. in. And, you know, they span. So we've got human interaction is one, computational emergence, computational engineering, um, Uh, adaptive environments, uh, quality perspectives. So thinking about what's the metrology here? What do we measure? How do we mm -hmm. know the health of these systems? Mm -hmm. Do we even know what that's all about? Can we monitor, the, yes, monitor exactly, them? exactly, yeah. exactly. So a couple things here real quick. First of all, I should give the, the URL for where to find out more about this. I'm sure Marcus will put it on the website. In the show notes, yes, of course. But it's uh, www.sei.cmu.edu slash ULS. So that's a good place to go to find out um, more about this yep. particular thing. Anybody who is interested can actually download a PDF of the report or they can request a hard copy of the report if, oh, okay. if they'd prefer it in non-electronic form. Something else that I think is, is kind of unique about this report, I've been involved with or read many research reports before, and, and mm -hmm. oftentimes they will give a very uh, sort of solution-centric view. They'll say, yes. these are the ways that we, these are the breakthroughs we need in research, yeah. and here's how we propose to do them. But they tend not to tie them back into some of the driving challenges that exist mm -hmm. that motivate the need for these things. Yeah, actually, when I read the report, I thought it's almost exclusively the challenges and not, I mean, ideas for solutions, but not solutions themselves. So one of the things we, we tried to do is, I believe it's chapter five, tries to go back to what the missions are. What In this particular case, they were they were DOD-centric missions, but you right. could imagine doing something similar for the other kinds of civilian applications yep. that Linda was talking about before, where it says, these are some of the things that we're trying to do 
that are very important from mm-hmm. a mission perspective. Mm-hmm. Here are some capabilities that are needed to make those missions succeed. And then there's a mapping, actually a, a mapping to research agenda tracks right. saying, and if we had breakthroughs in the following five areas having to do with adaptive resource management or ways of expressing design closer to designer's intent or the types of metaheuristics or computational emergence type things that Linda was talking about earlier, this would be a way to enable those capabilities and make the mission succeed. And, and that's kind of a unique way of looking at things because it helps people read the report who are not technologists but who are yeah. systems engineers yep. or domain experts yep. and then see how those things map down to the technologies we're proposing. Yeah, it actually yeah. helps people understand who are not technologists what some of this research would give them in terms of capability. And that was really important for us. The genesis of the study was, of course, someone who was interested in in the future, someone who was interested in capabilities of the future, and we wanted to make sure that we mapped back to that vision and those mm-hmm. capabilities that he was really looking for. And and you both have used the term breakthrough, and I think you mentioned or you used this word intentionally. So you're not think you, you don't think that we just go on, you know, developing what we do, and and you know, at some point we'll be at at this. We're, we'll get the ability to do the ULS systems. You probably really think, and I would agree probably, that we need to have a radical shift in the way how we do things, real breakthroughs. Yeah, we definitely agree, the whole team agreed, that breakthrough research was needed, that this is not about incremental improvement in the way we're currently doing, because the things we're currently doing, the assumptions we make, are actually undermined by the characteristics of large-scale systems. Mm-hmm. I kind of think about it this way. It's like we're kicking a whale down the beach. Now, we might eventually get there, but it's going to be very slow, and it's going to be yep. quite painful. Yeah, and for everybody. Right. <laughs> yeah, 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 in our toes. Um, but... But what we recognize has been a long time since people have thought about real serious research and looking at some of these problems of the future. We've we've sort of uh, kitted ourselves in making incremental improvements in the way we're doing things. And yeah, we've made a lot of progress, but our aspirations have far outpaced mm-hmm. the progress we're making. And I think we're talking about a fundamentally different animal here, something yeah. when we talk about cities versus buildings that gets to me. Obviously, there's a dimension in this report that's also trying to um, appeal to visionaries in funding sources, both in industry and in government. <laughs> yeah. and, and trying How do you to get help the money for, for this kind of research? And, and trying to help them to more effectively articulate yeah. the needs and the visions and the way to achieve and be successful at, at operationalizing those visions yeah. and needs. And I think we, we need to keep that in mind as we, we look at the kinds of things and challenges that we're going to be dealing with going ahead in this area. In the United States, anyhow, we've become lulled into this state that someone else is doing the research and everybody is just mm-hmm. kind of pointing fingers mm-hmm. in opposite directions. And, mm-hmm. and the realization that no one in a way that's commensurate with the size of the problem is really investing mm-hmm. in this kind of research mm-hmm. is disturbing. Mm-hmm. The same thing in Europe, or at least in Germany, that big companies are reducing their research departments and aligning them much more with development or even production department kinds of things. It's very tactical. Yes. It's very, it's very short-term. Yep. Um, and yeah, that can help us with short-term things. But as we look at the trends and where we're going in the future, who's looking out for the future? Where's the kind of funding and research program that gave us the internet? Mm-hmm. Uh, we're right. not seeing those kinds of programs anymore. And it's as if uh, all these problems are so- somehow mysteriously going to be solved. And mm-hmm. I don't think that's the case. Yeah. One of the interesting things that happened over the last 10 years was, of course, the, the meteoric rise of the, the Internet and the dot-com mm-hmm. era towards the end of the last millennium. And I think you can look at that in some sense of people picking the low-hanging fruit from the tree that had been growing for decades as a result of long-term investment in research stretching all the way back to the 60s and 70s. Mm-hmm. And it, it came became ripe, and they picked it, and they were yep. able to be successful for, for a whole variety of reasons, many having to do with the, the demise of the dot-coms and the, and the burst of the people's optimism that that was the way forward. We have basically been in a situation in the last five years where we, we've been eating our seed corn. Mm. And as a result, we haven't been able to invest or take the, the initiative or the nerve to invest in these larger-term efforts. And so one of the consequences we're already running up against as a result of the decline of internally funded and in some sense externally funded mm. R&D mm. Is, is a complexity cap on the kinds of systems that we're able to tackle. And we're, we're already straining under the weight of trying to do today's mm-hmm. large-scale systems. Yep. And we do that today by relying on heroes. We, we make simplifying <laughs> assumptions. We keep our fingers crossed that the sunny-day scenario is, yeah. is what we're going to encounter. 
we tend to try to pick a, a relatively small number of technologies and use them to simplify the way we do the work. And a lot of those things just won't be possible in a ULS-ed world. Mm. So unless we can find the, the will, the nerve, and the vision to be able to attack this problem uh, more ambitiously, it's really unlikely we're going to be able to be successful at building the ULS systems that we're going to be putting into place, even if we may want to start them. Okay, so Linda, I know that you that you have to run. So, so before we uh, introduce the other people who will join us shortly, um, do you want to say something, like a summary or something, that you want to leave our listeners with before you go? Yes, um, I'd, I'd like to uh, applaud the group of people who came together and the fact that we were able to accomplish what we did in an 18-month period. Normally, I've been involved in these kinds of things, mm -hmm. and you know, we can spend several years and we all come together and we pontificate and walk away feeling good that we all said stuff. <laughs> yes. uh, uh, in this case, I think people rallied around what was a really important problem and became almost addicted to the discoveries we were making and um, the discovery that we really are unable to cope with the scale and the issues that are attendant to scale of, of ultra-large size. And so... I really do hope that people read the report and are motivated to begin to think in these mm -hmm. terms and to rally around getting some research going because I think it will be unfortunate if we don't begin to really address our long-term problems and, as Doug said very eloquently, stop eating the seed corn. <laughs> okay, Linda, thanks very much for being on, the show, being on the show. Okay, you're entirely welcome. And as it happens, just at the time when Linda had to leave, uh, our two additional guests joined the discussion, so we con can continue directly. So our two additional guests are Gregor Kichalas, so welcome back, because he's been on the podcast already, uh, and Kevin Sullivan. So um, before we discuss the topic any further, maybe those two additional guys maybe briefly introduce themselves so listeners know who they are. Well, thank you, Marcus. I'm Kevin Sullivan. I'm on the faculty in the Department of Computer Science at the University of Virginia, and I generally uh, describe myself as being in software engineering and languages research. And it's great to be back, Marcus. Uh, this is Gregor Cazales, and I'm a professor at the University of British Columbia in the Department of Computer Science. And most of my work is in is in language design, and in particular in um, in the space of aspect-oriented programming for the last little while. Okay, so, and in this, like, second part of the discussion, and, and Doug is also still here. So, in this second part of the discussion, we're going to discuss some more of the of the technical challenges that uh, arise from having ultra-large-scale systems um, after discussing more like the, the general problem in the in the first part with Linda. So, um, maybe, Doug, you want to start and outlining some of the technical challenges and also maybe avenues of possible solutions for these for these problems. So, Marcus, as we were talking about before, one of the characteristics of ultra-large-scale systems is that they will have failures as the norm because they'll be very large and the types of environments in which they'll run will be subject to attacks and resource depletion and other types of loss and failure. So one of the most important technical challenges that we discussed was the need to be able to make systems that would continue to operate and be able to detect when failures occur in a metrology-type way that Linda had talked about and when problems occur, be able to find ways to take corrective action in order to keep the system performing its mission, even if it may be in a somewhat degraded mode. So one of the key challenges, of course, is to come up with technologies that make it possible to detect problems, to be able to compensate for those problems, to be able to self-heal, self-adapt themselves, and to do this under various time constraints and other resource constraints. So a lot of the report and the part, particularly in Chapter 6, that talks about the research agenda, talks about various technologies for adaptive resource management and quality control and fault tolerance and robustness and other terms that are important. And uh, some of the things that we also had talked about with Linda earlier were some of the new, more science fiction-y aspects of research in these areas, things like computational emergence, metaheuristics, mechanism design, uh, genetic programming, and so on. And uh, one thing that we're looking at, of course, is how to make those things move out of the realm of science fiction into more types of technologies that are stable and robust. Yep. This is Kevin Sullivan, and uh, I just add a couple of a uh, couple of points to uh, issues that Doug has raised. Uh, number one, these systems are going to be extremely complex and also unprecedented, and that means that from the outset, we're not going to know exactly what the requirements for these systems are or how to build them. 
uh, we're going inherently to be in a sort of uh, learning by doing mm-hmm. uh, style of development, and that dictates that our uh, processes of development, of system procurement, of integration mm-hmm. uh, change over time. We're going to need, for example, new approaches to hedging architectural commitments in the early stages of development so that we don't uh, prematurely get locked into suboptimal mm-hmm. uh, design spaces. Uh, at the same time, we're going to need to be making architectural commitments uh, so that we can enable decentralized development of, of, of these systems. And so finding appropriate uh, methods and uh, a way to balance uh, architectural commitments against uh, the needs for uh, uh, hedging in the face of uncertainty. That's, yep. that's another one of the issues we're going to be dealing with. I think one of the things that's, that interests me in particular about these systems is, you know, we're, we're talking about that we're going, to, we're going to build these systems. Of course, in order for them to be ultra-large, large pieces of them will be things that we already have. And yet we're going to be putting these large pieces into situations that are more demanding, into trust scenarios that are more demanding, into reliability scenarios that are more demanding, into security scenarios that are more subtle. Um, mm-hmm. And I think one of the most interesting things is, is going to be finding ways, you know, for me it's from a linguistic perspective, but of course there'll be other approaches to it, you know, finding ways of talking about the novel kinds of integrations between the new and the old parts of these systems and, and being able to get the, the old parts of these systems to, to be what they were, but also to be some some new thing used in some very different kind of context. Um, I think there's going to be some very interesting hard problems there. So 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 that, that that means maybe that we have to make sure that things are quite modular so we can compose them in ways we didn't intend them to be composed. Well, I think they need to be modular, but more than modularity, uh, which is a sort of uh, easy word to throw around, we need to have architectures uh, that we validate. And what I mean by that is we need to have rules that are uh, that constrain the properties of the components mm-hmm. where we can conclude by an analysis that if components follow the rules, then the systems will have the properties that mm-hmm. we want them to have. Mm-hmm. And in many cases, uh, large existing systems simply will not have the properties that are needed uh, to plug into the architectures that provide the, pro- the system-level properties that we're going to want. So one of the things I think that we are going to have to do is come to grips with the need to simply discard some large existing systems if we want to have any hope of uh, getting to the point where these ULS systems of the future actually have the, say, real-time or the survivability or dependability properties that we want. Mm. Um, uh, you know, Overall, I think we need to develop a discipline of architecture at the ultra-large scale. And that means rules and um, uh, componentizations and uh, property specifications that govern the behaviors of entire industries and uh, and and determine the uh, the properties uh, uh, that need to be uh, uh, present in the large scale components in order that these components uh, can plug into systems with. Uh, uh, very demanding uh, properties well beyond what we can achieve today. I think that this is a 50 or a 75 year project, mm-hmm. not a 10 year project. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so I think it's okay actually look at discarding uh, large existing systems. The real question in my mind, or at least the interesting question is, what sort of architectures do we need over the next 30, 40, 50 years uh, so that when we rebuild all of this infrastructure, we get something that'll actually work for us? So, so what are some of the, the, the promising architectures we might kind of think that are a good avenue to explore? Is it like peer-to-peer systems, self-organizing stuff? Is it software that, you know, evolves itself, genetic algorithms, or are there any ideas already? Or is it really that we simply don't know? Well, I think we have some experience in systems that are not going to work effectively, classic client service systems, which may be useful for certain parts of the system here. So we know what's not going to work. We, we, know, we know things that are not going to scale, yeah. uh, although parts of the system will still be based on that, if for another reason that we're not necessarily going to throw all those things away. Um, obviously, peer-to-peer systems are, are an exciting a new approach. There are many challenges, of course, to make them more predictable and to be able to give them a chance to give you uh, better support for, for information assurance so that you don't put pieces out and then have problems if someone comes along and, and masquerades or, or serves as a Trojan horse to inject information in different parts of the system. W- one thing that's also going to be needed, of course, is for these systems to be able to continually update themselves 
over time incrementally. And it's, it's very unlikely in a, an ultra-large-scale system that you're going to be able to stop the whole system, update it, and then keep it running again. We already have that right. problem with the Internet. So yeah. we'll need to come up with ways of being able to use many parts of the system as, as uh, seeders to be able to take information and disseminate it out to other parts and make the system robust enough so that everything is not running the latest version. It, it still does sensible things. I, I would expect that one challenge is that as the system grows, we will have to add additional interaction between interactions between components that haven't been expected. So... Gregor, do, do you think that that maybe you don't think? <laughs> do you know what I was going to say? <laughs> I, I was trying to get at the point that maybe um, things like aspects or more generally um, code weaving, adding additional features, behavior to existing software so that it can communicate with additional unexpected components. Do you think that's, that's, that's a topic that could be, could be relevant there? Something that's worth exploring? Well, I mean, I think you know anything we do is going to, at least to some extent, build on, build on what what we've done before. Right. And and you know the ability of technology like aspect technology and related technology to let you think about using systems in a variety of different contexts to to to, to make things more adaptable in 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 different kinds of contexts. In that sense, something like that's going to play in this world. You know mm -hmm. whether. That it's our current, what we currently call the aspect yeah. technology that's going to play in the 30-year future that Kevin's talking about. I doubt that yes. very much. <laughs> uh, but, but certainly this notion of, of, of the components of these systems being able to be very context-dependent in their behavior, that's, yep. that's going to be part of this, of, this, of this world. Do we need additional maybe languages, new ways of defining abstractions? New, I mean, Doug, you're working in this model-driven world. Do, I mean... And, and the idea of that is to, to describe systems on high levels of abstractions. So is that, is that an interesting technology there, or are we basically relying on the idea to define you know, small components with simple rules and then have evolving emergent behavior, swarm intelligence, and these kinds of things? I'm just obviously speculating. <laughs> well, this is one of those things, going back to what Gregor just said, I think if we look at today's model-driven technologies, they're typically not flexible enough or scalable enough in many different dimensions to be usable for systems at the scale of an ultra-large-scale system. But mm -hmm. I think at the same time, it's probably the case that we're not going to try to write billions of lines of code in third-generation languages alone with the traditional ones we've used. So it's going to have to be some combination of, of text-based languages, which give you certain kinds of approaches, uh, very de probably declarative languages in another dimension. And of course, if we can get the model-based technologies to scale up more effectively, uh, ways of trying to raise the level of abstraction to look closer to what the domain looks like, if you can find ways to represent that. So there, there are challenges in all those dimensions. Yeah, I'm, I'm actually a firm believer in what Fred Brooks said, which is that figuring out what you want to say is more important than uh, mm -hmm. how it's actually represented. Mm -hmm. It strikes me that one of the great challenges, really, that we've lived with for many years but still haven't solved is how to write... Uh, specifications essentially for components and uh, architectural specifications in a way that um, um, is understandable to the folks who need to deliver the components, who need to validate the architectures, mm -hmm. but precise and constraining enough that uh, we get components that actually work. Yep. Uh, you know, if you're doing e-commerce systems, it's, um, it's one thing. But if you're talking about uh, 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 hardware chips that need to have very specific timing characteristics, for example, right. in order that your software won't fail uh, in a safety-critical hospital-based mm -hmm. system, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, then uh, you've got to have a way to communicate those requirements to the vendors who are going to provide the chips into your systems. Formally, so that's not well, a way you know, of interpreting. I don't know exactly what the right sort of notation or language mm -hmm. is mm -hmm. or the right approach but we're still a long way from uh, being able adequately to communicate um, what others are obligated to deliver, what they must not deliver, uh, and uh, both to validate those specifications with respect to the overall system and to certify the components that are delivered against those specifications. Uh, we really do need uh, additional work in that area. It's worth noting that almost everything we've talked about so far, by the way, would also be of great benefit to 
more conventional systems. Right. Even the even small scale or medium scale systems today yep. would benefit from a lot of these things. I think the difference is that today, oftentimes when the systems are somewhat smaller, we can brute force solutions through people being heroes and through just trying stuff and, and testing it till the money runs out and so on. Mm-hmm. And with the ultra large scale systems, it's just not going to be feasible to get to that point uh, through through luck or or miracles, which is what we often expect today. Yeah, I also wanted to come back to this question of abstractions. Yep. Um, uh, one of the things I think we're going to have to face as we go forward is the need to develop fundamental, sort of new fundamental abstractions for building systems. Mm-hmm. So if you look at some of the abstractions that are central today in many systems, they include, for example, uh, the relational calculus. Right. Um, well, that may no longer be a sufficient abstraction of data uh, if we're talking about a, a, a ubiquitous uh, distributed sensor networks mm-hmm. uh, where a data is not locally or centrally represented uh, uh, as, as one example. I think there are you know, quite a few examples where we're going to have to rethink sort of fundamental, fundamental abstractions. Concurrency is another example where yeah. you know, we're poorly served by, by existing abstractions. The premium on uh, better abstractions is just going to keep going up because Moore's Law is running out. We're going multi-core. We're going you know, multi-chip, multi-core. Um, we're going highly decentralized. And our current abstractions for systems programmings, uh, systems programming are no longer uh, sufficient to be able to build these systems affordably or dependably. So I think you know, technology trends are really going to drive us mm-hmm. uh, to overturn some of the abstractions that we have rested on for a number of decades. We have a lot of work to do going forward. I just want to echo that point that Kevin's making, which is... You know, we, we think about the ULS vision, and it's easy to, to see in sort of that very large scale how some of these abstraction mechanisms and, and ideas that we've had are going to break down. But a lot of other things are going to force us in the same space. I, I think one of the reasons I'm saying this is because some people will say in response to the ULS thing, well, but, you know, what if that ULS thing doesn't happen? Do we need to solve these problems? And And I don't actually question that the ULS thing will happen because it, you know, People will try to put these things together, whether yep. whether we've given them the right tools to try to put <laughs> them together or not. Um, but it, as Kevin's saying, lots of things about the current substrate, we're, we're kind of up against the limit of what we can do anyways in some important ways. So we're going to be forced to solve some of these problems, mm-hmm. to understand how to reason about concurrency, to understand how to compose things about concurrency. One of the kinds of abstractions I'm particularly interested in, which really comes up in these ULS systems, is the ability to abstract over some of the relationships between the inside of the machine and the outside of the machine, right? If you look at what the way people talk about sort of semantics in, in languages and things like that, it's all this very internal thing. But the more these systems become embedded, the more those kinds of theories just aren't giving you help with the real problem, right? The real problem is more sort of, is the computer's model of the world the same as the actual world right now? And it isn't really, but can we abstract over the differences? Mm-hmm. It's all kinds of, all kinds of other kinds of things we're going to be able to, 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 to need to be able to help with, either from a linguistic perspective or, or a verification perspective or whatever perspective you want to bring to it. Just to echo yet again another slant on that whole point about what's going to be changing. So uh, this is all, these ultra-large-scale systems are also going to put a lot of pressure on the research community, both academic and industry. Researchers historically, especially in academia, have gotten very good at solving relatively clean problems very elegantly and precisely. And a lot of the stuff that will happen, as Gregor was just alluding to, in this this real physical world interaction with the information technology is going to be pretty messy. And a lot of times having solutions that are that waiting to have solutions that are perfect are going to give us the information way too late to be able to do anything effectively about because by that point the architecture will be far enough along that it's going to take an eternity and an enormous amount of money to change it. So as an example, in a lot of these large-scale systems, they're historically built by spending years doing the infrastructure part, mm. and then once that's finished, starting to work on the applications. 
And the problem, of course, is in an ultra-large-scale system, you don't really even know if you've built the infrastructure correctly until you have a way to test so it at scale. How do you test them, by the way? That's, that's maybe <laughs> the other challenge. <laughs> Lots of dimensions there. So one thing, of course, is it depends what you're testing for. If you're testing for functional properties or performance or quality yep. of service properties. Yep, yep. So assuming, let's just focus on quality of service for one second. So in that environment, it's important in a world where you have these layered systems to be able to get some kind of approximation of, of real behavior from the applications early in the life cycles of the infrastructure so you can get better feedback on which architectural designs, which ways of deploying components to the hardware, which selections of middleware, which selections of languages, which selections of operating systems and networks and configurations and so on are actually going to lead to functional results as opposed to dysfunctional results. So things like system execution modeling, where you're able to do estimation and, and emulation of certain parts of the system, yet have as many parts done in, in the real environment, in situ, as possible, and be able to do that quickly so you can do experimentations and feedback results in a hurry to give people and architects and systems engineers guidance on their designs. That'll be a crucial thing. From a quality assurance point of view, techniques that are able to do sampling and allow us to be able to have representative analyses and, and conclusions drawn from samples are going to be difficult to do because of the distribution issues. The, the, is this a representative sample of the reality issues? But I don't see any other way we're going to be able to scale up some of the quality of service and quality assurance techniques. Yeah, I think we can talk a lot about how uh, technology trends are going to make life uh, more complex for uh, software-intensive uh, systems developers. Uh, at the same time, I think we can uh, begin to speculate on how some of these uh, advances in the underlying technology base and underlying capabilities will create new kinds of opportunities that we've never mm -hmm. really had, an, ha had a chance to think about before. Uh, if you think about how computers sense their environment up until now, for example— It's basically through keyboards and mice. Mm -hmm. That's an extremely impoverished sensory system. Yep. Um, and it's absolutely passive and depends upon the actions of human beings to uh, provide input to computers. Yep. Uh, but just in the last couple of years, we've seen a proliferation of uh, integration of sensor sensing devices into, into IT systems, mm -hmm. uh, into computing systems. And uh, as that trend accelerates, we're going to suddenly be faced with large-scale distributed computing systems that can build extremely rich internal models of their external environment. And when we can begin to write programs against those representations of the external world, I think all sorts of new things are going to become possible. And uh, we're, going to, we're going to be facing uh, opportunities galore. The difficulty will be to figure out, you know, how to exploit all that, what sort of architectures can be used, what the new applications will be, uh, the killer apps, if you will. Um, and I can imagine everything from uh, – you know, I, re I really think that we have an opportunity – starting right about now to really rethink the last 40, year, 40 mm -hmm. years of mm -hmm. computing uh, because things are changing so dramatically, both for the better, new sensors, for example, and for the worse, the flatlining of Moore's Law. Yep. I mean, we're really looking at a new technology space, and um, uh, 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 I think we need to begin to talk to our colleagues uh, outside of computing to help mm -hmm. them begin to understand mm -hmm. that we're now on the threshold Uh, of a new era. Uh, one thought that occurred to me the other day was, for example, that uh, we need an analog of an operating system, but for an entire hospital. What does mm -hmm. it look like mm -hmm. to have an operating system that manages all of the peripheral devices in a mm -hmm. hospital, including queues of people, uh, x-ray machines, uh, imaging databases? Uh, hospitals are an absolute mess today. Yeah, and, very uh, heterogeneous. Um, so maybe we can do something there. We need to think big. I guess another example of how the changes in the hardware and, and the changes in things like Moore's Law will affect us is the following. Uh, those of us in the software world have, have somewhat been frustrated by a lack of respect that comes from the fact that most users have been accustomed to waiting a year or two and then buying a new computer. And so they thought they could postpone having to deal with some of the hard software-related issues, concurrency, distribution, fault tolerance, because the hardware would get fast enough they could continue to rely on fairly centralized-based approaches. Mm -hmm. That free lunch is coming to an end on its own accord for other reasons. But in an ultra-large-scale system, the ability to use a centralized approach, 
simply becomes completely infeasible. And so it's going to give us a chance to, to really have to grapple with these exciting and challenging issues. The, the hard part, of course, will be whether we've invested enough in our basic research to, uh, to be able to address those problems. And my concern, of course, is that we've often been focused in the last five years or so as, as a computing uh, field on more short-term applied things, which means, once again, we're going to bump up against the complexity yep. cap in terms of the kinds of systems we can address. Yep. Okay, so I think... Um that's that's more or less it. So if people want to uh, learn more, of course, they can read the ULS report, which we will link to in the show notes. Do Does anybody want to say some concluding remarks? Well, looking out 30, 40, 50 years, I see uh, a vast new uh, set of possibilities for an information-intensive society. Uh, we need fundamental research of a quite revolutionary nature to um, uh, give ourselves the technology uh, capabilities to... Um, to exploit all this stuff that's coming down the road. So let me just summarize why I think this ULS Systems report and the overall topic is so strategically important to our field. Over the last decade or so, especially in the last five years, there's become an increasing perception among many people that information technology of all forms, software and hardware, is basically a commodity. And the need to invest in longer-term thinking at, at both the, the basic and applied levels is really something that's a, a luxury that we don't need to worry about, mm-hmm. and that if we just wait a little bit longer, industry will, will solve those problems without having to worry about the longer-term issues. Yep. And I think one of the things that the ultra-large-scale systems report and, and the thinking that went behind it exemplifies is the fact that that is actually not true at all. And if we want to be able to achieve this new vision or this this coming vision in a way that is affordable and will be secure and safe and all these other properties we so much want, that we're going to have to rethink the basics, as Kevin pointed out. We're going to have to think longer term. And there really is a chance for a, a renaissance and a resurgence in the field. Mm-hmm. And I just hope that the, the rest of the, compu- the computing community and researchers will join with us in helping to make this happen. Okay. Thank you very much, and uh, we have to finish this up because there is this uh, conference social event tonight uh, at the yeah, the Oregon Science Museum or something. So thanks for being on the show, and uh, have fun on the party. Thanks for listening to Software Engineering Radio. If you want to get more information about Software Engineering Radio or if you want to give us feedback, please go to our website at se-radio.net. You can also contact the team at team at se-radio.net, although we prefer entries in our comments system on the website so other people can see what you think. Software Engineering Radio wants to thank Henning Pauli for the intro and outro music, as well as Lipson for providing the bandwidth. This episode of SE Radio, as well as all other episodes, is licensed under Creative Commons license. See the Software Engineering Radio website for details.